With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Four minor league championships have already been handed out. Two more could be handed out tonight. And we welcome you into the 76th episode of the Show Before the Show podcast from MILB.com, the home of minor league baseball. Hi, everybody. I'm Tyler Mullen, Sam Dykstra in New York City. Hi, Sam. Hi, Tyler. What's up? Not not too much. Just enjoying what's. What, I I feel like it's been an exciting playoffs. A lot of winning. A lot of yeah, winning. A lot, lot of a lot of winning going. We never on. win anymore, except for these teams that are that are winning. Yeah, there's lots of lo- losing too. Yeah, it's true. Uh, we never used to lose like this. No, nope, we didn't. It's just all losing now. It's all the winning and and all the losing, especially. <laughs> um, no, four champions already crowned in the minor leagues. The Appalachian League, the New York Penn League, the Northwest League, and the Florida State League have already crowned champions. Congratulations. We talked to uh, or we talked about the Johnson City Cardinals last week. Um, obviously, also uh, champions crowned in the Gulf Coast League and the Arizona League. But as of recent ones that have been crowned since we last talked to you, the State College Spikes took out a victory in the New York Penn League's finals. The Northwest League just wrapped up last night. The Eugene Emeralds come away with a win, snapping a 41-year title drought uh, in the Emerald Valley. And a member of the Florida State League champion Bradenton Marauders will be joining the show here coming up in just a little bit. We'll talk with number five Pittsburgh Pirates prospect Mitch Keller, who helped lead Bradenton to a three-games-to-one series victory over the Class A advanced affiliate of the New York Yankees, the Tampa Yankees. That one, I don't want to say that one was a surprise, but Tampa went in pretty hot into that series with the the late-season additions they had had, and Bradenton just steamrolled through the playoffs. They went 5-1 and one, uh, through the semifinals and the finals in the Florida State League, so we'll talk with Mitch Keller here coming up in a little bit and uh yeah with that we welcome you into this postseason edition of the show before the show podcast which you can find all over the internet by the way we're on itunes we're on stitcher you can find us there you can give us a rating and a review and a subscription and you can also find the show at milb.com slash podcast you can get in touch with us with your questions thoughts comments on prospects on the playoffs on everything else you can contact us podcast at milb.com as well and uh let's get started sam it started on this week. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, I I kind of want to start strike one here. Uh, just touching on some of these these championships that you mentioned, um, going a little deeper on them. Uh, I like what you said about Bradenton because that was going to be my big talking point about them was just looking at that team. Uh, you know, th- it clinched in Game Four. You look at that Tampa team. The top of the lineup was Jorge Mateo. You know, formerly the top prospect in the Yankee system. Uh, before all the trades they made. Rashad Crawford, who they got from the Cubs, and Gleyber Torres, who they got from the Cubs. If you were to tell me which of these two teams I would be more personally excited to watch in a best-of-five series, it definitely would have been Tampa. Uh, you know, Mitch Keller aside, you know, he only gets to make one start in these finals, uh, made two postseason starts for the Marauders. Um, but, you know, looking at the Bradenton lineup, it's not nearly as exciting with prospects, but that's what kind of makes... You know the postseason itself exciting, right? It's it's that you know these guys who aren't necessarily showing up on prospect lists all over the place uh, get a chance for their own personal glory. Um, I know I know Connor Joe. 
I think we wrote a couple stories about him these playoffs. Uh, I think he's becoming a little bit of a fan favorite, if only because of his name. But he is a legit prospect uh, guy hitting fifth in that Marauders lineup, uh, at least last night. You know, this is a guy who was a collective balance pick in 2014, uh, hit 277 with a 743 OPS. Maybe a little bit of a name uh, or building himself into a little bit of a name outside of just having two first names. Uh, but that's, you know, that's what I really like about these playoffs is that, you know, as much as we like to dig into prospect coverage and, you know, as very much that being our beat when we're covering these, uh, the playoffs allow us to kind of focus a little bit more on team play and uh, team success. And so, you know, the Marauders, I think, kind of fulfill that. Uh, so so congrats to them for pulling it out. Uh, State College Spikes, you mentioned winning the New York Penn League. I think that makes three lower-level affiliates of the Cardinals that have won championships this year. Uh, so the Cardinal way, for whatever that means, however you may define that, uh, has, has obviously trickled down. You've got State College winning uh, the GCL Cardinals you know, we talked to one of their players last week. If you're a Cardinals fan, go back and listen to that. And then uh, the Appy League, they win a, a title there as well with Johnson City. So you know, already we're starting to see some storylines and a little bit of surprises. We'll get to the big surprise still in the AAA a little bit later. Um, but yeah, I, I really appreciate just the way this postseason can take you a little bit by surprise in these games that are in these series that are only best of threes, best of fives. Um, you know, it, it is an exciting part of the year, at least, you know, from that standpoint, uh, what has kind of stuck out to you out of, out of these teams that have kind of clinched this last week, Tyler, you know, what I was really keeping an eye on this entire postseason was, uh, was the Eugene Emeralds because that team has been so talented. They just dominated the Northwest league. Um, but you know, that very similarly to, uh, to their parent club, um, they have been a team that has found a way to not win championships for a very long time. Since 1975, Eugene had not won an outright Northwest league title. They split a title with Bellingham back in 1980, but it had been 41 years since the Eugene teams of various incarnations and various affiliations had won a title on their own. And it looked like they were primed to do that. They win game one on the road coming home for game two and went 54 and 22 in the regular season. That was nine games better than any other team in the Northwest league. They won 15 straight at one time. They took out two time defending champion Hillsborough in the league semifinals and they won game one. You figured this is it. Eugene's got it. Then they get just whooped in game two. They lose seven to one at home. And then it all comes down to one night. Uh, at PK Park, and the Emeralds get uh, a run-scoring single in the bottom of the fifth to snap a 1-1 tie. They hold on from there, and it was really cool. Got a chance to talk to Jesus Feliciano, their manager, last night, and the thing he said that really stuck with me was talking about that championship experience for players and what it means, especially because they are a Cubs affiliate. He said, quote, we've been talking about this the last couple of weeks. Jason McLeod, who's the Cubs senior vice president of player development and amateur scouting, Jaron Madison, the director of player development, and Theo Epstein, and of course, the general manager is official title president of baseball operations. He said those three guys and all the front office, quote, have done to the minor league system is very special. It's a lot easier to have their backs like they have our backs. They trust in us. And I think what they're doing is not just in the big leagues. They're doing something special in the minors. And that, I think on a national scale, 
for people who aren't necessarily involved in the prospect world the way we are, that's probably a story that flies under the radar because everybody looks at, look at these flashy acquisitions. Look at the John Lester's. Look at the Chris Bryant's. I mean, obviously, he was a development, uh, a developed um, product who got to the major leagues. But um, those guys, you know, the Dexter Fowlers, uh, Anthony Rizzo was a trade acquisition when he was a young player, too. People, I think, just assume when it happens at the major league level, it happens at the major league level. But the Cubs have done so much to beef up every level of that system from AAA on down. This isn't going away for a while with the Cubs. I mean, this is their lowest level affiliate uh, of a non-complex league. This is a really good team, and this is a team that's going to continue to grow because of the reinforcements that it has coming up from its minor league system. That's what really stood out to me about that Eugene win. Yeah, and it's not only just Eugene. Uh, you know, Myrtle Beach is on the brink of exactly. uh, clinching the Mills Cup in the Carolina League. They lead that series 2-1 in a best of five. Uh, so by the time you hear this, Myrtle Beach might be another Cubs affiliate with a championship this year. I think that would be their second straight. So, yeah, we've talked about I think last year was kind of the year where we saw the Cubs farm system crest a little bit. Uh, and for plenty of good reasons, right? I mean, Chris Bryant... Addison Russell, uh, all these guys graduate as prospects. That's what you want them to do. Javi yeah. Baez, uh, Wilson Contreras this year. So, you know, you think, well, maybe it's over. Maybe it's going to be a while. Then you see Ian Happ has a really good year. Eloy Jimenez might be the breakout prospect of the year. And those aren't e- neither of those guys are on playoff teams. We're talking. Well, Jimenez got called up to Myrtle Beach, so he's helping them. But, uh, you know. Th- it's just really cool to see these Cubs, you know, think about where they were five, six years ago uh, when, the, you know, the Epstein regime kind of first took over and where they are now. And I'm glad you read that quote from the Eugene manager just because they, they can see it themselves. And, you know, once they start believing in themselves at the bottom levels, everybody you talk to in, my, in the minor league baseball experience says if you can carry that, if you can start it early and have them carry that. That's how you kind of develop some of these winning teams, uh, these winning dynasties. So Cubs are, if you thought they were done laying their foundation, (laughs) they're showing you they're not uh, even maybe halfway done yet. Strike two this week, Sam. The Triple A leagues are on a collision course, obviously, for the national championship game, but have got some surprises at their uh, highest levels of the minor league postseason with the finals underway in the Pacific Coast League and in the International League. And uh, you know where I want to start talking. Very interesting and intriguing matchup in the PCL. Um, the Oklahoma City Dodgers and the El Paso Chihuahuas. El Paso has a one-game-to-none series lead there. But in the International League... I'm not even calling them the G Braves anymore, the Gwinnett Braves, the C Braves, the Cinderella Braves. That was like the cheesiest sports talk radio thing I've done on the show. The C Braves, man, they're making it work. Gwinnett wins their division, in case you have missed this over the last couple of weeks. Gwinnett makes it into the postseason by winning its division at 13 games under 500 and then rolls into the league's finals and grabs game one. Gwinnett finished the regular season 65 and 98. They've got a one game to none series lead over Scranton Wilkesbury, which went 91 and 52, nine games better than any other team in the league. Yeah. I, I was all <laughs> set last night to just say, oh, well, Gwinnett's going to take game one because they have, you know, rehabbing major leaguer Aaron Blair starting. Right. Yeah. You know, built in excuse. 
This is a little bit not fair, but, you know, the Myers are feeder system, whatever. I get it. it and works. he started the year in AAA this year. It's not a, not a crazy, no. <laughs> you know, they didn't bring Greg Maddox out of retirement for it. No, that's true. But uh, it just it felt like, oh, this is just going to play into some, you know, storyline of, you know, Gwinnett's or the, Atlanta's trying to pump up its its AAA affiliate to get a championship, whatever. But, you know, then you have Sean Kazmar hitting a three-run homer as part of a six-run first, and then you're like, you don't need Aaron Blair anymore. Right. It didn't matter who was going to start on the mound. Uh, they get that 7-4 win. So, yeah, you know, G-Braves keep on fighting. Kind of interesting note in that series. Uh, the first two games are in Scranton-Wilkes-Barre. The last three are in Gwinnett. Um, I wish I kind of knew exactly how that worked out off the top of my head, but somehow Gwinnett will end up with home field advantage if it, game, if it goes five games. Um which will be kind of fascinating. So, yeah, the G Braves getting off to the start there uh, that pretty much none of us expected them or us, none of us expected them to be this far in the first place. And like we said last week, now the only thing left to do is just go out and win the whole dang thing. Uh, I'll pivot a little bit just to the PCL. Just Let me so just jump in real quick on the International League because you mentioned yeah, yeah. Sean Kazmar. He is my favorite story of these playoffs uh, because Sean Kazmar is kind of the definition of a journeyman. He's 32 years old. He's one of those guys who so you click on his baseball reference page. He's got one line listed under his major league stats. He played 19 games for the Padres in 2008. And then you click on the minor slash winter league slash whatever stats, and this is what it looks like. Drafted and started in professional baseball in 2004 – Fifth round pick out of the College of Southern Nevada. He's now 32 years old. He's played in Eugene, Fort Wayne. He played in West Oahu when the Hawaiian Winter League was still a thing. Lake Elsinore, San Antonio. He went to the AFL with Peoria in 2008. Portland, when Portland, Oregon was still a minor league city back in 2009 and 2010. He was there in the Padres system. Tacoma in 2011, went to the Mets organization in Binghamton and Buffalo in 2012. And then he's been with the Braves since 2013. So this is not a hot shot prospect. This is a very cool story for a guy who the baseball days, as they're numbered for everybody, they're a little bit more numbered for a guy who's 32 years old and is on that other side of uh, of the age of 30 as a professional athlete. Sean Kazmar in this postseason, through five games for Gwinnett, is batting 476 with a 1431 OPS, three homers, seven runs batted in. He's 10 for 21. He is such a cool story, and he's been the heart of this team so far, which is really, really neat. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I always get a kick out of guys who are still in the minors who play for teams that no longer exist. Yeah, uh, definitely. Sean Kazmar, you know, played for the Portland Beavers in 2009, right. 2010, just to give you an idea. No, I mean, that's it doesn't feel like that long ago. That's six years, seven years ago, but uh, it still puts it a little bit in perspective. West Oahu, uh, by the way, they were the Cane Fires in the Hawaiian Winter League back in 2006. The Cane Fires. I assume Sugar Cane, right? Yes. This doesn't sound like a imagine. thing you would really want to tout, though. The, cane <laughs> fire. the entire thing is on fire. Some other names I mean, who were on that team, just in case you're wondering what the Hawaiian Winter League was like, uh, for Major League position players, John Mayberry and Will Venable were on that team. Pitchers, they were actually pretty loaded with pitching. Jabba Chamberlain, Ian Kennedy, Mark Melanson, they were all on that team. Um, so some pretty decent talent that went through that club. Yeah, I, I kind of wish we still had the Hawaiian Yeah, League. I know, me too. That would be, be a, 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 a sweet gig for one of us to go. <laughs> exactly. Let's let's run that up the chain. Let's Let's go to Hawaii and investigate <laughs> what the Hawaiian Winter League was like. We'll come report back. Yeah. It'll, it'll be a business trip. Yeah, really. somebody fund this for us. Sounds yeah. like a great idea. <laughs> yeah, somebody. We, will, we will only stay in five-star resorts. No. Please. We have standards, darn it. <laughs> uh, 
No, just so we, you know, don't completely neglect the, the PCL. To the PCL. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in that series, El Paso took a, a one nothing lead. They they beat Oklahoma City last night seven to five. Carlos Asuaje was the uh, the star in the first game of that best of five championship series. Uh, that El Paso team, I I am a big fan of. Um, you know, they've got just chock full of prospects, names you will actually know. Uh, Manuel Margot led off last night, followed by Asuaje, followed by Austin Hedges, who, if you remember, had that crazy run. Yeah, uh, middle of the year this year uh, seems like he he is still the Padres catcher of the future. He's not technically a prospect anymore. Too much major league service time, but um, you know, still a guy who is really good defensively and can you know run through a really good offensive stretch, especially in AAA like this. Uh, Hunter Renfro, we've talked about a bunch. PCL MVP. Patrick Kivlahan, uh former really good prospect in the Mariner system, then got moved to the Rangers. Now in the Padres. Uh, so that team just filled with lots of really good talent. Uh, but Oklahoma City, I wouldn't exactly sleep on them either. Uh, they brought up Cody Bellinger uh, in the kind of a similar situation to Bradenton bringing up you know, Mitch Keller or Myrtle Beach bringing up Eloy Jimenez. Uh, Cody Bellinger was brought up just before the regular season ended, uh, got a little bit of time with OKC, and now is their starting first baseman in the playoffs. Obviously, the Dodgers' top prospect. They also made a little bit of news. They brought up Alex Verdugo. Uh, he could help them in the outfield, although he did not play in game one. Uh, again, I think that might be just to get him a taste of AAA action so he knows what to expect next year. But also, hey, if you've got the talent in the system and Verdugo is you know, a, easily a top 100 prospect, uh, shown a lot when even he was one of the youngest players in the Texas League this year, uh, getting that bump now to OKC, you, you might as well use it. Um, so we'll see if they can even it out, try to push forward to uh, Memphis next week. Uh, just quick, uh, Tyler, let's just, for the heck of it, because we're a sports show. This is what sports shows do. Uh, we're come already cheesy one nicknames game like Sea Braves. What? They come up with cheesy nicknames like Sea Braves? Yes, yeah. Okay. Or, or cheesy headlines in our, our <laughs> games. But uh, we'll, let's just give our picks. So who do you – out of those four teams, who do you think makes it to Memphis and who do you think wins it all? Man, I, I think Gwinnett's going. Um, there's also some late breaking news, and we talked about um, Aaron Blair making the start uh, You know, as a major league rehabber. The Braves actually just acquired a, a former ranked prospect, and a guy who was one of the biggest head scratchers in minor league baseball over the last several years, but a right-hander named Joe Wheeland, uh, who was a very high draft pick of the Texas Rangers uh, several years back, back in, I believe, 2009. Uh, but Wheeland has been with the San Diego Padres, Los Angeles Dodgers, the Seattle Mariners. The Braves just acquired him, and Mark Bowman of MLB.com tweeted, quote, Wheeland will give Gwinnett depth through the end of the playoffs. Joe Wheeland is the type of guy who you can ride for seven shutout innings. I mean, he is a very, very capable starter. That gives Gwinnett another person to ride. They only need two more wins to make it through and win an international league crown. They're at such a crazy level right now. <laughs> How are they not going to win it? I got, I got Gwinnett making it out of the international league, and I do think El Paso makes it out of the the PCL um, because they've gotten hot bats going when they've really needed them this offseason or this uh, this postseason. You mentioned Manny Margot and how good he's been. Hunter Renfro came through with a massive homer for them uh, in the finale, the semifinal set against Tacoma. So I got those two teams in Memphis. All right, so you, you went ahead and took mine. Cause oh, okay. I think we're kind of in agreement. Because podcast I mean, synergy. We have yeah, group mind well, here. We're I'll like be... an old married couple. <laughs> I think we reached that about 34 episodes ago. <laughs> 
but uh, we're just continuing. That's all. Yeah. But yeah. No, I, like I hate to say it now because it's so easy. It's like, oh, game one's already behind us. So all Gwinnett and El Paso each have to do is just win two more games and they're in. I get that. But uh, it seems like Gwinnett is just so much more, you know, on, on a roll here. Uh, Scranton actually just had Mason Williams promoted. Uh, so they lose a pretty good talent in their outfield. Um, they still have a decent amount of talent. Notably, Clint Frazier is there. Uh, but with Gwinnett having, like I said, you know, home field advantage those last three games, even if they lose game two, even if they lose game three, they still have game four and game five at home. Uh, and El Paso, again, I just I really like that lineup so much that uh, it's t- tough to find an easy out at the top of that lineup. Um, and in the PCL, you know, where you need a good offense, they certainly have one. Um, so I, I think they're really primed to make it. I, I'll take El Paso for the win in Memphis. Okay. Um, again, just based on talent, I, to say that they know what it's like to play in Memphis is just kind of, that, that's kind of interesting. And I would love to hear some quotes from guys on if there's an advantage having, you know, knowing what it's like to play in a certain park when you're going for the AAA national title. Um, so a, a couple different things, but I'll, I'll take the Chihuahuas to uh, to win the whole thing and tune in next week to see if we were right. I'm going to take the Sea Braves because I came up with a nickname Sea Braves. For I know you got to ride that forever. And you know what else it stands for? Champion Braves. Oh, <laughs> you've been chewing on that for like 15 minutes. I actually just thought of that. And I'm very uh, proud of it. Strike three, Sam, this week. Um, throughout all the levels. We are nearing the end of many series. Like we said, two more series could conclude tonight in the Carolina League and the Southern League. Myrtle Beach is up, only needing one more win to take its second straight Carolina League title. Jackson, the AA affiliate of the Seattle Mariners, up two games to none in the Southern League. They only need one more win there. But as far as prospects go, who has done the most to up his prospect profile and stock during this postseason? Yeah, I'm going I'm to turn to the uh, South Atlantic League. Um, which is fascinating in its own way because it pairs up Rome and Lakewood, uh, both of whom have not faced each other at all this season uh, going into this championship series. And I'm going to take two guys from, well, one guy from Rome, one guy from Lakewood. They're both pitchers. And, you know, I I hate to say that their stock increased so much over one start, uh, but they certainly did enough to make your head spin and and think, well, you know, that's going to, that leaves you something to think about heading into the off season. Uh, the two guys I'm talking about are Franklin Kilome uh, and Tuki Toussaint, both of which are, have been a little bit maddening at times because both guys have what feels like all the talent in the world. They're both high ceiling guys. Uh, you know, Kilome in, in the Philly system, uh, Toussaint in the brave system. You know, we've talked at length in the past about Tuki you know, coming over from the Diamondbacks, what that was like, his struggles last year in Rome. This is his second year in Rome. Put up a 3.88 ERA, 128 strikeouts in 132 and one-third innings. Uh, if you ever get the chance to see his curveball, it is one of the coolest pitches, I think, in all of baseball. Uh, literally looks like it falls off a table. Um, but he's struggled at times to repeat, you know, his delivery, his control has struggled at times, averaging a walk every two innings. Uh, Kiwame kind of the same way. You know, he's a big guy at six foot six, 175 pounds. One of those guys you can really dream on, um, but just hasn't really put together the whole thing. At 3.85 ERA this year, 130 strikeouts and 114 two-thirds innings. Good numbers to be sure, and this was his first full season, first time ever pitching more than 50 innings in a season. 
in a regular season anyway. Uh, but both of these guys just were absolute horses when they needed to be in these playoffs. Uh, Kilo May, in his one start for Lakewood, only gave up one hit, struck out nine over seven innings. Uh, Toussaint pitched last night um, in the in the South Atlantic League Finals, went a full eight innings, gave up one run on four hits and struck out six, did not walk anybody, uh, which is a big point for him. So, you know, what you want to do with a lot of these guys, and we're talking about it in a playoff sense, you, you want to win the ring. You want to enter the offseason with some momentum and feeling good about yourself. But when you're a pitcher, uh, I talked to – Tristan McKenzie in the Indians organization who did not have a great start to end this year. Uh, you know, that last start can kind of give you a lot to think about. And if that's, these are the last starts for Kilomay and Toussaint after some uneven years. Okay. Now they can feel a little bit more optimistic heading into that off season uh, with McKenzie. It was okay. I need, I know I need to do better in the later innings. So that's going to be an, a point of emphasis getting stronger for these guys. They can say, okay, yes, I am good enough to succeed at these lower levels. Let me focus on that. Let me be a little more optimistic. Um, so, you know, are, are we going to see both shoot up into the upper 50s of, you know, top 100 prospects? Absolutely not over one start. But, uh, you know, this is the start they needed for us to feel good about them going into the offseason. And, and they were uh, they certainly delivered. One of our favorites is uh, is my guy, and it is the slugging and just crushing Tyler O'Neill of the Seattle Mariners, who we've talked about on the podcast before. Last year, coming into this year, it was a lot about the question marks surrounding Tyler O'Neill. The reason I think, I don't know how much more he can up his stock as a prospect, but the reason I think he continued to do so in the postseason is not only did he put to rest the questions about him himself as a hitter in the regular season in the Southern League, being out of the California League, what it was going to do to his power, obviously a fantastic season for him. In the regular season, I think he's continued to show that no matter what, the ballpark changes, not going to be an issue. The atmosphere changes, you go from regular season to postseason, not going to be an issue. So far for A Jackson, uh, which again, one win away, from winning a Southern League championship. Six games this postseason. He's batting 435, 519, 870. He's homered three times. That's a 1388 OPS. He's also doubled once. He's driven in eight of his team's 24 runs. He just continues getting better. Tyler O'Neill, there is nothing you can do to stop this guy at this point. Um, the other thing that I found interesting, by the way, Jackson has played six postseason games so far. They've only used nine position players in those six postseason games. Everybody's played, it looks like, every inning so far, according to their postseason team stats, which I find interesting. Uh, but Tyler O'Neill just continues to be an absolute force at the plate, and he's got Jackson uh, coming up with big hits, go-ahead doubles, go-ahead homers in the postseason. He's got him one win away from a ring in the Southern League. Yeah, and I'll go back to what I said. I think it was last week. You know, if O'Neill can run a streak like this, like he has yeah. through the postseason, you know, you do legitimately have to start talking about him for Player of the Year. Uh, I know USA Today named Alex Bregman their minor league player of the year, and then Baseball America named Yohan Mankata their player of the year. Uh, you know, both probably better overall prospects than Tyler O'Neill, but the season he's put together and then now the postseason he's put together, I mean, you just have to take a long look at that and think there's nothing he could have done better this year. Pretty um, remarkable. Yeah, we'll have to see if they wrap it up um, before we, we, you know, crown him or anything like that but uh yeah it, it has been really really remarkable from tyler o'neill if you want to crown him 
Then Crown, no. Mississippi, by the way, is the uh, is the adversary for Jackson and that the double-A affiliate of the Atlanta Braves. Um, the Braves have a lot of successful teams in the postseason right now as well. We've seen that throughout a handful of systems, the Mariners, the Braves, the Yankees. I mean, teams that just have minor league affiliates throughout the postseason um, at all the different ranks, and so that's been really interesting to see as well. Um, so that'll do it for this week's three strikes. Uh, one foul ball that we did want to discuss this week, uh, the AAA manager of the Las Vegas 51s, the New York Mets organization, Wally Backman, made it known this week that he had resigned there was some early discussion as to whether it was a firing, whether it was a resignation, maybe some issues between the front office staff and Wally Backman as to how he had handled certain players. But, Sam, he's been one of our guys who we've really liked to talk to uh, over the last few seasons since I started with MILB.com, I know, certainly. And, um, you know, Wally Backman was up for a managerial job in the major leagues a few years ago. That didn't happen. Um, he said that that is really what he wants. He wants to be a major league manager, a major league coach. But this was an interesting story to come out at the end of the season. Yeah, and it, it's kind of sad because, you know, living in New York these last couple of years, you get to see who kind of is a legend in the city. And I wouldn't say Molly Mackman's a legend, but he's certainly a fan favorite. Uh, and, and I know a lot of Mets fans are kind of rooting for him. They would love to see him. I know his name had come up in the past, you know, if, if Terry Collins ever got fired or even when Terry Collins first got the job, uh, should Wally Backman be considered? Um, so I know Mets fans really like him. Uh, from our standpoint, he was always a really good quote, always really good, uh, always honest. Uh, when we were able to talk to him about certain players, uh, he himself said, you know, between Buffalo, you know, between Las Vegas, uh, he had gotten to work with guys like Nemo, Conforto, Syndergaard, Travis Darno, uh, I think Matt Harvey in there. So this is a guy who, you know, touched a lot of the talents uh, who are now, you're now seeing uh, – on that really well homegrown Mets roster. Um, yeah, it was kind of disappointing to hear just, you know, what the way it went down. There were rumors that, or at least from the Mets side, apparently it, it was leaked that, you know, the Mets wanted him to hit Nimmo, uh, lead off more often. And he didn't do that. He kind of went against the, the wishes of the club. He still had Nimmo bat lead off 30 times this year. Uh, and he batted second 54 times, so that's a little weird. And also that he didn't bat Conforto uh, against left-handers a lot. He got 41 at-bats against left-handers compared to 87 against right-handers. That, that seems like a pretty uh, predictable split. Either way, uh, it'll be sad from our standpoint to not have Wally Backman to call on for these Las Vegas games. We'll see how he lands, if he can get a major league job, or if uh, we'll still be talking about him as minor league manager just in a different organization. So that'll do it for three strikes in our one foul ball for the 76th episode of the show before the show podcast. And coming up after a brief pause, we head to the Florida state league and we catch up with uh, a Florida state league champion, Mitch Keller of the FSL's now reigning title winners, the Bradenton Marauders, the class, a advanced affiliate of the Pittsburgh pirates and Mitch, the fifth ranked prospect in that system. He joins us to talk about winning a title in Bradenton, his full season in West Virginia and a whole lot more coming up next. (laughs) 
Just days removed from winning a Florida State League championship with your Bradenton Marauders. Mitch Keller, the Pittsburgh Pirates prospect right-hander out of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, joins the show. Uh, back home now is Mitch, who's the fifth-ranked prospect in the Pirates organization. What's it feel like to be back home? I mean, it's, you know, third professional season, drafted in 2014. The whirlwind of full season basically at the at the low-A level uh, with uh, the West Virginia Power. Then all of a sudden you're in Bradenton. Then all of a sudden you're in the playoffs. All of a sudden you win a ring, and now you're home. I mean, what have the last few weeks been like? Yeah, I mean, it's been a it's been a wild two weeks, two or three weeks there at the end there, winning the championship, and then just being home. I mean, being home is always great, being with your family and friends, seeing them again after a long time being away. But, no, it's great. I mean, it was amazing winning that championship. And what what kind of welcome did you get home? Was it Was it kind of like a champion's welcome, or was it just like, oh, Mitch is back? No, no, it's just kind of like, oh, Mitch is back. I mean, my brother's here, and my parents picked me up from the airport, so, I mean, that was cool just being home and then just being able to see them at the airport and then just be able to see family, extended family this weekend and all that. So, I mean, it'll be a good time. Well, let's run through Mitch's stages of his career uh, a little bit so far. Drafted in the second round back in 2014 um, out of high school in Cedar Rapids. Spent some time with the GCL Pirates in 2014. Then 2015, just six appearances, a forearm strain, kind of limited Mitch in action uh, last year in the Appy League. But then this year, wire to wire, West Virginia, 23 starts at West Virginia and really good numbers there, an 8-5 and five record and a 2.46 ERA. And then you get to call to Bradenton, which comes with one outing left in the regular season on August 30th. You go out six shutout innings in your class a advanced debut what was that like to get i mean the first in-season promotion is always i would imagine a, a pretty strange experience but especially to get it so late in the year what what kind of went through your mind when you were told all right you're going up to, to the florida state league you're going to help with the playoff push there um you know i was really excited when they told me i wasn't really expecting it to be honest um i was actually getting prepared to go on a road trip to columbia and pitch my last start there um against the Fireflies, so I mean, I wasn't really expecting it, but then they told me that I was headed out the next morning. I mean, it was kind of frantic packing up everything, and then um, obviously getting in Bradenton and then being able to start there was just, I mean, I had a lot of nerves going too, because, you know, new team, new new atmosphere and everything, you want to you want to do well for them and prove you, prove you belong. I mean, so it was just really, it was really exciting too, just I had a lot of adrenaline going there. Yeah, and what does it kind of feel like to be called up in that situation for a team that is looking to, you know, compete in the playoffs, uh, clinch a title, that kind of thing? I mean, you, you you kind of have the role of a ringer, right? You, you're a guy they bring in just to pitch for these playoffs. Um, you know, what yeah, does it I mean, feel like to be in that role? It was it was a huge honor to be able to to get that call up to to help them out because I mean, they're calling you up to help them win. I mean, that means that means you have a they're looking for you to do something special for them. And um, I was just happy that I could help them get those two victories, the two games I did start in the playoffs. And then uh, JT Brubaker shoved too. I mean, he did really well to get the, the other two wins. And it was just a huge collective group win there. And, and Mitch, I kind of want to jump back a little bit. Um, Tyler mentioned last year, you know, you were limited to the only the six starts, 19 and two thirds innings because of a forearm strain. Uh, you're coming back this year, and you know this is supposed to be your second fullish type season. You end up jumping from 19 two thirds innings to 130 and a third innings this year. How were you able to kind of put together that season, especially coming off you know the injuries that you had last year? 
uh, you know, how are you able to power through for a full summer um, and kind of put that injury history behind you? Um, just, just going back to the off season, I mean, just getting myself in really good shape and I knew it was going to be a big year for me coming off the injury. I mean, I still had the, I still got a lot of innings in last year that weren't really recorded like in extended spring training and then going to instructional league. I mean, I got, I got some good innings in, but I mean, obviously not as many as this year. And I just knew I had to come really prepared if I wanted to make a full season team. And, um, I did, and they they rewarded me by putting me there and then I mean just continuing like the strength program and conditioning throughout the season really kept me strong throughout the whole season to be able to be able to perform for the whole year and one thing that kind of jumped out to me in your season um I know you said you know there's a lot of innings that weren't recorded in 2015 but in the ones that were you walked 16 guys in those 19 innings uh, this year, you only walked 19 and 130. You know what allowed you to have that jump in control? I mean, what? How? That's not exactly a, a switch people can just flip and say, "I'm going to automatically throw in the strike zone now." Yeah. Um, yeah. How are you able to to work on that particular skill when it comes to pitching? Um, I mean, going back to, I mean, high school, I was always kind of known as a strike thrower, and I think that that year in Bristol, I just like coming off an injury, I don't know if I was kind of timid, didn't want to like hurt myself even more. I just didn't have like the aggressive mentality like I usually do. And then just coming into this year in spring training, I just uh, came with the mindset of you here you go, hit it. I mean, just the mindset that my stuff's better than yours and that you won't be able to hit it mentality and just aggressiveness. And that really, I mean, that really helped me throw a lot more strikes, I think. And then just some mechanical things too that we worked on in instructional league after, uh, after the year in Bristol. Mitch mentioned his brother earlier. Uh, John Keller is a pitcher in the Baltimore Orioles organization who spent this season with class a advanced Frederick and double a Bowie. And Mitch, to be able to have somebody who you can bounce stuff off of and somebody that I would imagine you spent a lot of, you know, innings thrown in the backyard to when you were a kid and a lot of days on the same field. What has that been like? I mean, John joins the, the professional ranks a year before you, so it's not like he's a seasoned veteran by the time you get into pro ball, but a guy who's got some college-level experience and who's been there, uh, knows the routine, knows what professional ball is like. How much has that helped early on in these stages of your career? I mean, it's just helped tremendous. I mean, being able to call him, talk to him anytime I want, uh, just kind of give me insight on anything. I know most guys don't really have that. They're going through it for the first time, like I was too, but I just kind of had that person to fall back on and, you know, get little tidbits, hints here and there. And then just in the offseason, be able to throw with someone. I know some guys from up north don't really have anyone to throw with. Um, just having him to be able to throw out and throw with and work out with huge I mean we're just huge motivators for each other on a similar note to that too I mean it's uh obviously he's familiar with this experience being in uh in you know spring training in Florida and all that kind of stuff you guys as a Pirates affiliate your class a advanced team in Bradenton at the complex um you know you got the the safety blanket of having a brother who's been through it you also get when you get to Bradenton and you get to that level you get to be around staff members who a lot of other minor leaguers don't have the luxury of being around I mean that's one of the the real nice parts about having a complex located team 
when you got to Bradenton from West Virginia, what was the biggest change, you know, being around medical staff, training staff, strength and conditioning people? I would imagine um, a large contingent of, you know, front office and developmental people that maybe you don't have when you're at some of these different levels. What stood out most about that? Um, honestly, just the facilities stood out the most, having that coming from a low A team to basically a big league set up there at McKechnie Field. I mean, that's just – that was the main thing. It was it was really awesome. I mean, all the coordinators were there too because the seasons were winding down from everywhere else too. So they were all down there for instructs, and they were all there watching. So, I mean, it was it's cool to have everybody there. Um, but our coordinators do a, a really – a really good job of making sure they stop at every affiliate. I think they were there at least four times in West Virginia too. So, I mean, it it wasn't that big of a difference having them there, but I'd say just like the big league setup kind of was the, was the main thing. And and Mitch, just to go to back to your kind of development this year as a pitcher, um, you know, kind of stuff wise, you know, you look at some of the scouting reports on you, you're a lot of, plus grades on your fastball. People really like your curveball as well. They say your changeup's kind of coming along. From your view, uh, at least you know from a stuff standpoint, what was the biggest way you grew uh, this summer? Um, the biggest way I grew, I'd have to say, is probably uh, being able to locate fastballs where I wanted to. And then towards the end of the year, um, just really working on my changeup and my, my curveball for strikes earlier in the count, which I think really helped me get hitters off fastballs which I know when I when I go up in levels or if I want to go up in levels I'm going to have to be able to throw off speed for strikes so I thought that was a huge stepping stone for me and one stretch I wanted to touch on as well I think it was a 33 scoreless streak you had there in the middle of the year um you know we all wish we could be on a run of success like that but when (laughs) it's your job to throw up zeros and you you're doing it consistently night at you know start after start um, what was it like to be in the middle of that streak? And then what was it like when it finally ended? Um, you know, I didn't really know what was going on <laughs> uh, until, until the end there. I was like, dang, I'm going on a pretty good streak here, I think. And then when it, ha- when it ended, I, was, I wasn't mad about it or anything. I was just was in the heat of the game. I think it was the first playoff game. I gave up three runs on, on a mistake I made. But, I mean, it was cool to go through it. Uh, it was really cool to go through that. Mitch Keller, the Bradenton Marauders, back home in Iowa now for the uh, for the off season. Are you headed to Instructs? No, I'm not this year. So you get a chance to finally relax and take on a full off season. What is when you look ahead to 2017? Um, you know what stands out about this off season because you're not coming off an injury. You're coming off a very very successful season. You get to win a championship. I mean, at this stage, I would imagine there's a lot of uh, just breath catching um, from the last few weeks, especially. But what's something that you're anxious to you know work on and get accomplished heading into 2017 to start the year strong? Um, honestly, just taking a few weeks off here, getting relaxed and let my body recover a little bit. And then, you know, just getting right back in the weight room, getting stronger, even more stronger and better condition for next year. Cause I know it's going to be the same one. It's going to be the same, same length of season. I'm going to have to be even better shape if I want to perform the way I did this year. So that's what I'm really looking forward to just getting bigger and stronger in the weight room again, bigger and stronger and better shape. Um, 
John's big. John's a big dude. If we were going to have like an arm wrestling match between you, John's listed at 6'5", 210. Mitch is 6'3", 195, which is no slouch, obviously. But who's who's winning that over the offseason? Oh, he is by far. <laughs> he's, always, he's always whooped up on me. So <laughs> he's still a lot bigger than I We am. all know now, John. We all know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, you're on. <laughs> well, the, the one last thing I wanted to get to, um, you know, before we let you go and enjoy this offseason – uh, just how different is it going to kind of feel going into this? I mean, now you're at, coming off this season, you know, a lot more Pirates fans know you, a lot more national fans know you. Uh, you're a top 100 prospect. Does anything feel different in, mm-hmm. in that respect entering this offseason? Or, you know, um, a guy who kind of blocks that stuff out? You know, I try not to look at that stuff too much. Um, just we're kind of trying to block it out and not really think about it. Just kind of go out and do do what I do best and just, I don't know, just keep that stuff to the side and just go out and play the game and have fun with it. I mean, it's the best game in the world, so try not to get too stressed out about it. But, uh, no, just it'll be it'll be fun coming back into spring training with with kind of the expectation that, uh, that I have to perform like I did last year. I mean, I kind of look forward to that. And getting to go to spring training at a place where you just won a Florida State League title is pretty cool. Mitch Keller is the fifth-ranked prospect in the Pittsburgh Pirates organization and coming off of a title in the Sunshine State with a Class A advance, Bradenton Marauders. Mitch, congratulations on the end of the season, and thanks a ton for giving us a few minutes after just getting home, you know, like 20 minutes ago, I think. Um, <laughs> and uh, Congrats on a, a heck of a year, man, and we'll be talking to you down the road. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it a lot. We've got some uh, some good nonfiction stories to get to this week and some good fictional stories to cover this week with Benjamin Hill, who joins the show with uh, a couple of really cool things we'll get a chance to talk about. Hey, Ben. Hey, Tyler. Hey, Sam. Hello. Let's start in uh, in Stockton. This is a really a really cool story that's up on the site right now from Ben's California League slash PCL slash Pioneer slash Northwest League trip that took place, uh, the big Western swing um, at the late stages of the minor league season. And Ben's got a story up right now on whether or not Casey at the Bat, Ernest Thayer's comic ballad, was inspired by Stockton, California, and minor league baseball, or at least the very early incarnations of minor league slash, at that time, kind of major league baseball, in Stockton, California. This is something that I never even knew was a possibility, but Stockton uh, maybe gave rise to the Mudville Nine. I had no idea that this was a thing. It is a thing, Tyler. And, really and now cool. you have an idea about it. Now it is I cool. Um, I was aware of this story. Um, again, this is something I pursued when I was in Stockton last month as part of the trip you mentioned. Um, I was aware of this going in because I, I, I did know that the Stockton Ports, who are a charter member of the current incarnation of the California League, and they've been the Ports since 1946, except for 2000 and 2001 when they changed their name to the Mudville Nine. Um, and that was in recognition of uh, Stockton's history as potentially the location of you know Ernest Ayers, Casey at the Bat. So when I went to Stockton, you know, I got in touch with the team beforehand and said, "What do you guys know about Casey at the Bat and Stockton's connection, and uh, you know whether or not we can say that this is where the poem took place?" And uh, myself and the general manager of the team, Brian Meadows ended up going to a local museum, the Hagen Museum, a very impressive museum, and talking to the museum's CEO and uh, history curator, a guy by the name of Todd Rostaller, 
Rostaller. I'm sorry, Todd, if I'm getting <laughs> your, your name wrong. And, you know, so we met him and he had a lot of archival materials, uh, different, uh, you know, baseball memorabilia from the 19th century when Stockton had a team in the California League. Not the California League we know and love today, but it was the California League. Um, they had a team in 1887, 88, around the time that Ernest Thayer wrote the poem. Uh, Stockton was called Mudville. Um, for good reason, because it would be incredibly muddy for huge portions of the year and virtually impassable. And, uh, you know, got some quotes about how it got the name Mudville and, and everything related to that. And Ernest there, you know, originally wrote the poem for the San Francisco Examiner. Stockton's only 70 miles away. Uh, Stockton and San Francisco had teams in the same league at that time. So there's a lot to say that um, Casey the Bat was certainly influenced by Stockton. But, you know, I'm not the first person to tackle this subject, obviously. Uh, there's a town in Massachusetts, uh, Holliston, that also claims that they are the site of the poem because Ernest Thayer was from there originally. Uh, that city was also called Mudville for its own reasons. That was uh, another thing that I didn't know. I didn't realize that we just had all of these cities that had absolutely no pavement structure. I mean, I guess it makes sense, but especially for like a late 19th century East Coast city, you would have figured, you know, they had a bit more in the way of streets and sidewalks for Holliston, Massachusetts. Stockton, I guess, makes a little bit more sense, being that it was so far out west in the 1800s. Well, but it was just yeah. mud everywhere. Having been around Holliston, I w calling it a city is a generous term. Uh, <laughs> well, at least like a, a civilized area where you would have figured they would have been like, hey, let's lay down some cobblestones here, everybody. Yeah, I'm, j I'm just saying, I think Stockton, maybe, uh, certainly by modern standards, is more of a city than than Holliston, but anyway. Yeah, and certainly in, in the 19th century, it was certainly more of a city because it was, uh, you know, it, it formed very quickly in the wake of the gold rush and then was an industrial center uh, in California, you know, being on the water, being a port. Um, so a lot of traffic there, a lot of people settling there from other parts through the gold rush and through, um, you know, business along along the water. The San, uh, San Joaquin River is where Stockton's located. Um, so anyway, as I was saying, I'm not the first person to tackle this. There are a lot of things that point to Stockton being an influence, but you just have to come ultimately to the conclusion that, you know, Thayer maybe wasn't thinking of any one place, any one set of players. You know, he just was a baseball fan who used his, uh, you know, his, uh, his specific reference points. And so Stockton played a part, but is Stockton definitively Mudville? We'll never be able to say, but the fact is, you know, they were called themselves the Mudville nine. Certainly, uh, Stockton's baseball history in the 19th century, almost certainly influenced elements of the poem. And that's a really cool thing. And by the way, I think we all know the poem Casey the bat, but it's a phenomenal poem. I mean, yes, we, a comic ballad. It is uh, not written, uh, with great skill, or uh, subtlety, but it is a great poem. And for all those looking for a great rendition, uh, track down Tug McGraw with the Philadelphia Pops Orchestra doing it in the wake of the Phillies winning the 1980 World Series. <laughs> I have uh, two copies of that on vinyl, being such a cool guy that I am. But it is a phenomenal awesome. rendition. Um, so much energy and creativity, and I put it on every year. And uh, I can't find it online. And uh, I think I need to be the one who gets that up on YouTube. Yeah, yeah, yeah there you go. But that would require um, ambition and <laughs> initiative. Uh, and one of those fancy vinyl to digital recorders. Yeah. Forget. I'll give you that excuse if you need it. All right. That's the excuse I need. But I want to get it out there to the masses. Uh, Todd McGraw on the Philadelphia Pops Orchestra. Casey the Bat. Check it out. Well, how defensive did you get a feeling of like the people of Stockton are? Are they just like, oh, this could be a cool fact. We'll take it if they're going to give it to us. Or are they – is this kind of like the baseball version of Springfield when it comes to the Simpsons? with every Springfield claiming 
some piece of the the Simpsons version of the town. Yeah, I think that's what it is. I, I didn't get a sense that Stockton, uh, you know, they're their Convention and Visitors Bureau is not saying come visit Mudville. And Holliston seems to be the city or town, sorry, the, the, <laughs> it's all the, the, the small town. How much do you hate this city? I there? don't hate it at all. I'm just saying. It's, not, you know, <laughs> it's, just a, it's all a vehicle for Sam's personal grudge against Holliston, yeah, yeah. Massachusetts. Yeah, all Central Mass is going to get really angry at me now. Yeah, but Holliston has actually uh, done more civically to say it's us. And, uh, you know, they've they had they've had reenactment games and um, they have a statue of Casey. And, you know, again, Ernest there grew up uh, in the in neighboring. Uh, help me out here, Sam. Worcester. 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 It's just Worcester. Worcester. Uh, there grew up in neighboring Worcester. Worcester. And um, so I think Hostin has done more in recent years to say, no, this is us. Mudville is us. Uh, Stockton certainly has a claim. But, you know, even at the local history museum, the guy I talked to, he was very uh, – uh, ambivalent about it, and he, he I quote him at the end of the piece, and he says, you know, he says he thinks Stockton probably has more claim, but I think it's dubious. I don't think Thera was thinking of Stockton when he put it together. I think a lot of this just happened. He took his personal experiences and came up with names, and I love this quote. He came up with names so that they would fit in with the meter of his doggerel. <laughs> doggerel. I was thinking when I read this story, I would not, if I was like back in my hotel room or wherever you did this transcribing it, I would not have had a clue what that last word was i don't think i've ever heard a meter of his doggerel is like a more uh sophisticated phrasing than i've ever come up with in my life so nice job nailing that down because i you know i'm not bragging i knew it as soon as he said it i remembered it when i was transcribing i was like oh awesome that's the part of the our talk when he said meter of his dog like you know I, it was exciting i've never been good. able to quote someone pretty good that word yeah it's probably the first time that word has appeared on the site, I would imagine. I was thinking oh, that, I would hope so. and I take pride all through the long period of time I've written for this site of just being like, <laughs> I got that in, and now I got this in, and get uh, obscure pop culture references and strange words, and uh, you know, when you do the same thing year after year, you, you need things to uh, keep it fresh, and the meter of his doggerel, check it out. All right, so now way. we want to stay in the Cal League. You had another story, I think this came out last Friday, uh, about... I love the title of this, Marriage, Kids, and Baseball. It sounds like a, you know, some movie that could be coming out, just your, your next in the line of like the rookie and that kind of stuff, Disney baseball movies. But uh, you, you got to talk in Visalia with the Bon... I'm going to get this wrong. Baja Nara- I don't know. It's I, not Baja Nuraru. <laughs> yeah, that's not it at all. I'm so sorry to the family for getting there. By the way, say, in the middle of this, I texted Sam and said, you, you're you going to take this next question because I don't want to be the one to butcher this name. So I, I, so I just confident when you said that. I threw Sam so under the bus, and I yeah. apologize. I think it's Bajanaru. Bajanaru. Um, and uh, Alyssa and Jeff Bajanaru, uh, please let me know if I'm saying your name wrong. Uh, anyway, I wrote an article about Alyssa and Jeff Bajanaru. Um, and the premise of the article was that basically they've been married for 14 years. They've been a couple for 16 years. They now have two kids, age nine and seven. And um, the entirety of their relationship has been in almost the entirety of it has been within the world of professional baseball, specifically minor league baseball. So this is one of the more in-depth stories I've done uh, from my road trips. And uh, it's about you know, just kind of how they made the relationship work and the sort of life you have to live and commit to when you are um, living a life within professional baseball. So they met when they were both in college. Jeff gets drafted, or not gets drafted, signs as a signs with the White Sox as a free agent right after college as a fifth-year senior. And uh, they just started dating. And then there you go. They're together 16 years later. He, Jeff um, 
made it to the major leagues and pitched parts of three seasons in the majors, was out of baseball for a couple years, at which point they had kids. Then I uh, got a coaching job with the D-backs. He's now in Visalia after two years with Missoula. And uh, the, the kids are homeschooled. They, they, uh, they spend the baseball season wherever Jeff has been assigned. And the story is just about how they've made it work. And uh, I've gotten really good response to the story on the website, more so than uh, the average story I write. And uh, so I think people like reading about marriage, kids, and baseball, and family life, and how you make a go of it in uh, unorthodox situations. The thing that's so crazy, I mean, to to stay in the professional life when you're playing is one thing, but the professional coaching life at the minor league level is just as much of a, you know, to use the most overused term in minor league baseball, it's just as much as a, of a grind to be a coach at the minor league level, Jeff, the pitching coach for the Visalia Rawhide. And so that, I mean, what did you get a sense of what life has been like in the change from a playing career to a coaching career? I mean, obviously there are kids now, there's a lot different stuff to, to worry about on the real side of life, but how how did it change when the playing days ended and the coaching days began? Did you get a sense of that? I did a little bit. And actually, it became, you know, obviously adding kids to the mix is a whole whole nother level of uh, things you have to consider. Um, but in a sense, it gets easier when you become a coach. Not that it's an easy life per se, but then when you're assigned, you know, to Visalia for the 2016 season, you're going to be in Visalia. And then therefore the family can make arrangements to be in Visalia for that entire year from early April. And they're still in the playoffs now, you know, in mid September. And, uh, that's different from being a player. Cause you know, where you might start the season, you might go up and down and back and forth three times throughout the course of a season. So trying to balance that with uh, a wife and kids who are traveling with you would become a lot more onerous. And they didn't do that portion of the relationship. Um, you know, when the kids were involved, but it kind of worked out for them. Um, they were the kids were born in the brief period of time when Jeff was out of baseball, and then um, you know he spent his first three years as a coach in the um, Arizona Summer League, which just plays at spring training backlots in Arizona, so they could still stay you know pretty rooted in their home while Jeff coached. And now as the kids are older and they're homeschooling, they get to spend two summers in Missoula. They get to now live in Visalia, and they get a a real taste of this baseball life, and it, it seems like it's working out. It is a crazy industry that the players and coaches find themselves in during the season because it is, yeah, a lot of long hours, and but a lot of really cool opportunities for stuff like this, which is neat as well. Um, so go check out that story, which is up on the site now, too. And um, actually, Visalia kind of gets us into our final topic of the week as well. Visalia uh, is one of the teams currently fighting its way for a, uh, a California League championship, and um, there are two teams, one of which has already been eliminated from the California League playoffs that we will never see again, uh, the Bakersfield blaze were knocked out um and the high desert mavericks have moved on so bakersfield falls to visalia high desert the other team that will be contracted from the california league moves on they will play for a california league title against visalia and that's coming up and you know for so long i mean when we talked about contraction in the early stages of when that story came about we talked about how interesting it would be if it was bakersfield versus high desert with both teams not going to be in the league for 2017 if they would have had the chance to play for a title one of those teams does make it um what you know what have you gathered around high desert in this last chapter for them where they'll get you know at least one more home game maybe as many as three more home games but you know the last chance for the high desert mavericks could culminate in them celebrating uh, a championship for the final game ever at that ballpark yeah it's a great story um but you got to say i think the bakersfield blaze with having the core of their front office have been in 
uh, Bakersfield for longer than the core of the High Desert front office. And uh, Sam Lynn Stadium, where Bakersfield plays, is 75 years old compared to about 25 years old in the High Desert. Um, there's just been a lot more uh, attention and energy and emotion yeah, definitely. seems around Bakersfield. And I think that was the sort of, to the extent there's a popular choice in something like this, I think the popular choice is really to see Bakersfield go all the way. High Desert has not gotten the attention um, and, and there hasn't been quite the uh, level of emotion and uh, poignancy uh, with their final days. But, you know, that's still been there 25 years. There are still fans there uh, who want to go out, you know, with <laughs> with a championship, not to mention the players to shut down the franchise, uh, you know, with the championship. And I think it's really cool the High Desert Mavericks have made it. I think we all wanted to see High Desert versus Bakersfield in the finals, which would be pretty amazing. But if it's not going to be Bakersfield, I'm glad it's Visalia because Visalia has not won a championship since 1978. And uh, as I mentioned, the Alligator, correct? Yeah, and that's due to the curse of the Alligator because the last time they won in 1978, Joe Charbonneau, a young Joe Charbonneau, was on the team. Uh, you know, a couple of years removed from his uh, breakthrough rookie year with the Cleveland Indians, and basically his only real season in baseball. In, in major league impact. But anyway, Joe Charbonneau had a, de- a pet alligator, Chopper, who was kept in a bathtub, tried to escape, died, uh, you know, hit his head in trying to escape from the bathtub. And uh, the Visalia Rawhide have been cursed by this alligator, by Chopper's ghost ever since. And they're actually wearing gator skin jerseys. I don't think it's real gator skin, but they're wearing <laughs> gator skin jerseys throughout the I was the wondering what those jerseys were because I saw those in photos from uh, Game 3 in Bakersfield. And I was like, what is this top that Visalia's got going on? Now that makes perfect sense. Yeah, when I was in Visalia, not this year, I was in Visalia this year, but the last time I was in Visalia in 2013, I, I wrote a story about uh, Chopper's ghost and uh, the curse of the alligator. And the team has really ran with that every year that, you know, they've been in the playoffs. They've, they've ran with that. This year they said we're going even further, you know, attempt to really uh, become one with the spirit of this dead alligator. We're wearing these jerseys. Uh, I think it's a great story. And, you know, so that's the second longest title. You know, the Eugene Emeralds won the Northwest League Championship yesterday. And uh, they hadn't won outright since 1975, the longest drought in all of minor league baseball. They'd been co-champions in 1980, but hadn't won outright since 75. Syracuse has not won since 76. That's the longest drought right now. And right beyond that, Visalia Rawhide, 1978, been tormented by the ghost of a dead alligator. Also, um, can somebody run this up the chain of the Chicago Cubs that they wear goat-themed jerseys for the rest of the way this year? Because that's the only next logical step at this stage, right? It, it really is, um, and I think if Visalia wins with the Gator skin jerseys, yeah. um, then the Cubs basically can't not. No, win you have to season. at that point. Yeah, I mean you have no choice. So get on it, guys. So maybe it's a good thing the Red Sox curse is over because then they would just have to wear big Bambino faces, giant Babe Ruth faces. Yeah, like when yeah. like when El Paso had the Chihuahuas on the front of their jerseys. Yeah, that could work. Yeah, well, just a giant Babe Ruth, like maybe a ghost Babe Ruth. <laughs> The one from the Sandlot, not the actual Babe Ruth, just the actor from the Sandlot. I think that'd be that'd be even cooler. Uh, Ben's stuff is all up on the site right now. You can check out the stories from the California League at milb.com and more on the blog as well, bensbiz.mlblogs.com. And you can follow Benjamin Hill on Twitter. He is there at bensbiz and. Uh, and getting down to it, off-season stuff begins uh, in earnest. I'm sure we'll be talking about the promo seminar and getting ready for the off-season and all that kind of stuff here within the next week to two weeks, which is nuts. But uh, Ben, always exciting to even get to that stuff, which isn't you know quite the quite the lifeblood of the game as the on-field stuff, but 
already at this point of the year. We're, we're still excited for it. We're excited. We'll talk to you're you excited, next week. Yeah, we're excited for everything. Excited and, for and I'm excited to talk to you next week. And uh, yeah, programming note, these two stories we just talked about today uh, about Casey the Bat, about uh, the Bajanaru family in Visalia. Those are my last uh, MILB.com road trip stories. Still plenty more to come on the blog because it really never ends in terms of the material I have to get out there. But this is really, for us now, the transition to the offseason. So join us. Do not abandon us. That is some of the best stuff, too, because when you are in like the doldrums of the early stages of winter and Ben still got stuff going up on the blog from the road trips. It kind of helps you feel like summer isn't too far off. So check it all out and uh, we'll talk to you next week then. Sounds good. Big thanks to Mitch Keller and to Benjamin Hill, as always, for joining the show. And that will put the finishing touches on episode number 76. Uh, we're heading to the final days of the minor league postseason. And I know uh, the the AAA championship series, the AAA finals and the PCL and the International League are kind of what a lot of us are keeping an eye on because they lead to one final step which is always fun in the AAA National Championship game, which is kind of the, the pinnacle of the MILB calendar. Um, but, Sam, what are you keeping an eye on most in these last few days of the minor league postseason? Yeah, I was just going to bring up the fact that, you know, you can watch the AAA National Championship on MILB.tv. You can. Uh, it's going to be next Tuesday, September 20th, in Memphis, as we were talking about earlier, at AutoZone Park. Um, so for those of you who are cord cutters, uh, you know, you will get a chance to see that game um, on your laptop. For those of you who still have cable packages, it'll actually be on NBC Sports Network, which is kind of fun and exciting. But uh, yeah, that AAA National Championship, we don't know who's going to be in it yet. Uh, it's always just kind of a fun game. It's it's literally just gravy on the top of, you know, the season for these guys. Um, you know, but it, it, they do, it's not a glorified all-star game. They are actually fighting for a trophy and for another ring here. So uh, it, it's the last baseball you'll be able to watch from a Meyer league standpoint uh, until 2017. So uh, yeah, take advantage while you can. So that's coming up on Tuesday and between now and then a lot of champions will be crowned and we'll be back to recap them all in one week for episode number 77. Until then, Thanks for tuning in. Get out to a game if you got one still remaining on the calendar somewhere near you and watch somebody celebrate and pour a whole lot of liquids all over each other's heads and scream and shout and have a lot of fun. We'll talk to you next week. Yeah.